KFBS. Radio 2. Sit Trap with Christopher Lee. Vicky Turner, thank you. And to the BFBS news team, thank you very much indeed. And thank you. Thank you for joining us at today's Sit Rep Roundtable. You, you are very welcome. In the next hour, Mr. Brown, is he really stupid? Or is he a chancellor with a bad memory? Soft power, hard power, nuclear power, cyber warfare, organised crime. Is that the future? Cutting nuclear weapons down to size, but is size everything? Why Whitehall's dusting off the maps for another Middle East war? Iran's nuclear reactors? What if Ahmadinejad's right? And we're wrong. And why it matters what colour shirt you wear and why our noble and gallant admirals <laughs> and generals are about to get the sack. For this week's marathon defence debate in the House of Commons, the emerging theme, wherever is in the Defence Ministry after the election, war fighting, peacekeeping, continuous deterrence, both conventional and nuclear and humanitarian operations. You can't drop one or the others may not work. On the line, the Conservative MP for North East, North East Hampshire and, more importantly for our purposes, Chairman of the House of Commons Defence Committee, James Arbuthnot. Um, Mr Arbuthnot, uh, just before we get to the debate, um, what do we make of Mr Brown's uh, letter to the Chilcot inquiry saying he got the sums a bit wrong? Well, he got the sums quite seriously wrong and not in just one or two years as he said, but in, uh, I think it was five. And the thing that concerns, well, there are a lot of things that concern me about this. Uh, Other people have been relying on what he has been saying. I have been relying on what he has been saying as having been true. And the result of, of what he has been saying has been that I have personally misled people by telling people that, yes, it is true that defence spending has been going up in real terms year after year, and I discover now that it is not true. And I think that perhaps I have let people down by not discovering it myself. I think the fact that it's been out of, uh, that it hasn't been discovered for so long is very worrying, but we do expect that when the Prime Minister tells us something, it has. It turns out to be the truth. I know it's up to uh, Sir John Chilcott in his inquiry, but um, presumably Mr. Brown's letter uh, will not be enough uh, to satisfy the Iraq inquiry because there's more to it than what he said in that letter. Well, the fact that he has got it so terribly wrong um, is... In a sense, it is confirmation of what people like the Permanent Undersecretary said about the shortage of money. In a sense, it's confirmation about what uh, not just Bill Jeffries, but also Kevin Tebbit had been saying. And the Permanent Undersecretary. The previous Permanent Undersecretary, yes. Mm. Um, and it, it tends to support some things which uh, Lord Guthrie and Lord, Lord Boyce said in response to um, to the Prime Minister's evidence. And all of this is, actually, I suppose the best word I can use to describe it is upsetting for those of us who have expected to be able to rely on what the Prime Minister had been saying. Okay. Let's think, uh, let's think out 2040 and perhaps even beyond. I was intrigued in the defence debate on Monday in the House of Commons uh, about world defence. Uh, if you start with the theme, which I think the debate did, uh, 
uh, no cold, cold War enemy, but really state-on-state state war could still happen. Well, what we do know about the future is that in the past we have always got it wrong in terms of predicting what the future would bring us. Um, I think there was... Uh, uh, a statistic quoted by somebody at a Rusi conference a month or two ago saying that of the, I think it was the 73 conflicts that have happened since the Second World War, we predicted one of them. Yeah. Um, and so it is the job of defense to prepare the country for things that we will not predict. And that is why we need to have a balanced defense. Not it is, it, it, we must avoid the risk of balancing it so much and, predict, and preparing for such unlikely things that we are too thinly spread. So we have to make difficult choices, and we must do our best to get those right. And we're not, we're not the only ones in this position. I mean, some of our allies, and presumably potential enemies, are in that same position. Uh, that is certainly true, and, and particularly our potential enemies, because uh, they don't have the advantage of tax income uh, to help them fund what they do. They do have the advantage, though, of only needing to be lucky once, and states have to defend against any possibility of a catastrophic attack. And it's certainly true that you could probably say, well, we are not going to, I don't know, let's go to war with China. You're not going to do that. But if you find that you have a, an agreement uh, or some, some agreement or, or understanding with uh, Taiwan, you might find yourself having to publicly take sides. Yes, and... It I, can't, I cannot actually say that it is certainly true that we are not going to war with China. I can say that I do not know what the future will bring. Uh, we see China steadily expanding into areas of uh, Africa, of South America, and flexing its influence in a way which will bring unpredictability, particularly as natural resources throughout the world are more and more in demand as the population of the world rises. And so I don't know whether that will lead to conflict in the future. Uh, should we prepare for it? Well, not in the, immediate, in the immediate future, no. But I think we have to be able to ramp up our defense efforts to be able to prepare for conflict that may appear in the future. Do you know, having followed your committee for years now, um, there's a theme, isn't there, that we are not simply unprepared, but quite often we're not very competent at get, using the resources that we have got, using the planning that we have got, the ideas that we have got. And it's this sense of almost incompetence must, which must ask, which leads us to ask the question, are we actually capable of having all those facilities and those contingencies that you're suggesting we should have to have this balanced force? We seem to get by, but the risks are becoming more and more potentially catastrophic as technology improves. Um, it is now possible to destroy the world with nuclear weapons, which previously it wasn't. And so it mattered less in 
decades, 60 years ago, while it was obviously very important that we should defeat Hitler, uh, it was very unlikely that it could lead to the end of the world. A nuclear holocaust now could lead to the end of the world, to the world becoming completely uninhabitable within a matter of weeks. And possibly an electromagnetic pulse deployed in a dangerous way could lead to very catastrophic damage. Um, so are we competent to deal with it? At the moment, we are just getting by, but the risks that are rising all the time mean that we have to improve our competence, we have to up our game, because the risks are so very great now. James Arbuthnot, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Well, with me at the sit round table from the London Think Tank, Chatham House, the head of the Middle East programme there, Dr Claire Spencer, from the International Political Website, Stirring Trouble Internationally, its editor-in-chief and former Kremlin Foreign Policy Advisor, Alexander Nekrasov, and Royal Marine Major General Julian Thompson. Julian, as a as a one-time, uh, as an end user of all this, if you go through that whole list of soft power, hard power, etc., um, James Arbuthnot paints a pretty glum picture, doesn't he? Yes, he does. The, the problem that anyone planning defence faces is it's unlike any other activity of government where you're planning national health or the railways or transport. It's an unforeseen thing. It doesn't necessarily fit in with, or the threat doesn't fit in with public aspirations. We can all hope there isn't going to be a war. We all hope there isn't going to be one. And that may be your aspiration, but it just happens. And as he says, it may happen without any warning and and be unforeseen. And this is the problem, because otherwise you could, in in theory, spend every penny you have on defence trying to bank against the... uh, or build up defences against the unknown threats. And the problem people have is actually trying to sort out what might happen and being prepared for it. Yeah. Claire Spencer, I mean, there's a very good point here if you look at your region, the Middle East where almost every day there's a new story which is either threatening war, you know, Israel with Hezbollah, Israel mm. with somebody else. Um, we don't simply say, well, that's their problem. Somehow we are connected to what's going on there. Well, it's very well known this is a strategic area of the world. I mean, everyone talks about oil. Um, it's very much a crossroads of trade with Asia. The Asians, as, as we've discussed before, are, are moving into the region. Um, there, are, there are critical reasons why the outside world should get involved. But I think the question is how we get involved. I think militarily uh, is not perhaps the best way we should be getting involved, as we see at the moment with Baroness Ashton in the region trying the to galvanise the EU, exactly. Well, a uh, foreign representative, I forget what her high commissioner, I think, for, yeah. for, the, for European affairs. Now, she obviously represents, she doesn't formulate policy, she represents the policy of 27 members of the European Union. But in the longer term, it would be a lot cheaper, for example, through diplomatic rather than military means to see an end, uh, above all, to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And there, if we put more efforts into balancing the relations between the Israelis and Palestinians, that could be a much more fruitful way, do it through trade, do it through soft measures behind the scenes, than constantly waiting for the worst to happen, then moving in with military assets or even planning ahead for that. Yes. Alexander Nekrasov, it, um, I, listening to James Arbuthnot saying, well, you know, you've got all these problems, if you've read all these reports, I mean, it's a dozen a year, saying how, what a lot of what-sets the, they are in the Defence Ministry... Not alone, though, are there? There are a few other ministries that are going through the whole, the same sort of thing. Well, I think all ministries have those problems, and uh, 
I think uh, it was quite a gloomy assessment, wasn't it, mm. when we heard about uh, how the situation is. But I, I think there are... You believe certain, him? Well, why, why, why shouldn't I believe him if he's uh. the chairman of the defense committee? Uh. I mean, he, 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 got, he has information in his hands. But I think that he probably forgot or did, didn't want to mention the important problems that are preventing of, from having an effective military machine. First of all, intelligence. Human intelligence has gone through the window. Mm. Everybody depends now on computers, satellites. Don't, doesn't work like that, especially with terrorists who are bent on blowing up everything. So that's the first thing. Money has to be pumped into that. Uh, secondly, politicians should stay away from defense, not to be involved in the way they are and actually dictating things to the military. Hang on, hang on. You mean, you don't mean we don't have a defense Non-professional. Oh, I mean, I see. You know, they, they come in, for example, NATO's uh, heroic restraint, restraint in, in Afghanistan. That's stupid. You mm. know, they'll, they'll lose soldiers there because you can't respond with similar firepower if you're attacked because you have to be winning hearts and minds, even if they're detached from the body, uh, as we wrote on our website. But, um, uh, I mean, this is so, sort of stuff that that people interfere with without the knowledge of warfare, and they shouldn't be. And that is a big problem because many generals have been telling me that, and probably Julian knows that problem too, when people who have no experience in warfare are telling you what to Actually, do. Actually, very quickly, I was uh, breakfast this morning with a, um, a field marshal, and he said, why don't we understand history? Because if we did... One place I know we wouldn't be is Afghanistan. Mm. Uh, and all we've got to do is have a bit of history. Of course, the Americans, he said, you wouldn't expect to have any history anyway because they haven't got any history. <laughs> and so it went on. But it was, but it was basically this sane voice um, trying to tell us that something's wrong, supporting your idea that... But you can't have the generals, the field marshals, the admirals turn around and say, oh, sorry, squire. You know, I know what your commitments are to the United States, but we're not going to Afghanistan because you've got it wrong and we've got a history book. Oh, yeah, but that's different because I was talking about specifics. I was talking about, you know, if, if a general says that's how many soldiers we need, he knows better, or helicopters, right. or whatever. And the third point I wanted to make when we were talking about... He was talking about... Um, you know, basically terrorism, that's the main threat. I think China is the main threat. China is emerging as the number one enemy in the future. And I, I feel there will be a conflict between the United States and China over Taiwan. I mean, it's building up to that momentum. China needs a war, basically. And uh, America, in a sense, needs a war too. But uh, they don't really need a, you know, a big war. I mean, we all need holes in the head. I mean, come on. <laughs> Listen, I want to move on. Uh, um, we'll come back to this, I'm sure, in under some other form. Because the United States and Russia um, are getting ready to sign a new agreement limiting strategic nuclear weapons. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton in Moscow uh, at the moment is to discuss nuclear disarmament with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. The gold pen affair is getting ready, but it's been some time coming, as Jamie Gordon reports. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. 
At the same time, the late President Ronald Reagan demanded action from Mikhail Gorbachev at the Brandenburg Gate in 1987. The two men were also paving the way to implement the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, or START-1 as it became known. Four years later, in 1991, the two men sat down and signed a deal aimed at reducing the numbers of nuclear warheads on either side. Ten years later, this meant that some 80% of strategic nuclear weapons had disappeared from the face of the Earth. Now, almost another ten years down the line, and with the expiration of the initial agreement, President Barack Obama and his opposite number, Dmitry Medvedev, have been talking about reviewing the situation. Since his inauguration, President Obama has made no secret of his desire to rid the world of nuclear weapons altogether. I'm not naive. This goal will not be reached quickly. Perhaps not in my lifetime. It will take patience and persistence. But now we, too, must ignore the voices who tell us that the world cannot change. We have to insist, yes, we can. Presidents Obama and Medvedev spoke on the phone last week about further reductions. It's estimated that the U.S. has about 2,000 weapons and the Russians 3,000, and significant reductions have been agreed in principle, but there have been disagreements on verification measures. Another hurdle is the proposed plan for the U.S. missile defense system in Eastern Europe, and this week the lower house of the Duma in Moscow warned that if this issue did not have limitations placed on it, ratification of a new treaty could be jeopardized. However, the Russian foreign minister Minister Sergei Lavrov seemed more relaxed. I would advise you not to worry. It will be included. It will be legally attached, so there'll be no problem. Over the next two days, Mr Lavrov and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton will meet in Moscow to continue the negotiations. And the US hosts a non-proliferation summit in Washington in April. Jamie Gordon reporting for CITREP. Jamie, thank you very much indeed. Um, tell me, Alexander, there is no reason why um, Russia... Uh, wouldn't want to reduce uh, nuclear weapons. I've always assumed that people get rid of weapons that they don't want anymore or they don't want the other side to have or technically it's a bit of a fudge. No, Russia has to have nuclear weapons and it can't dispose of them because of China. China has an army which is, I don't know, 10 million or something that technically can put up. (coughs) Russia does not have that sort of army. Russia doesn't really have conventional um, forces that can withstand that sort of attack. It desperately needs tactical and and, and even strategic uh, nuclear weapons. It will cut down the numbers. It will never, never destroy all of them, ever. And that Americans know perfectly well, because it's not not a big, huge secret. Mm. And, uh, of course, they they, they can cut down, you know, from 3,000 warheads to to much lower numbers. 1,700 warheads. Technical um, nuclear warheads, they have enough to, you know, probably... Destroy all of China. Julian, I mean, size everything. I mean, I can't think... It depends what sort of weapons you're going to be left with, isn't it? When yes. you've got multiple re-entry yeah. vehicles. And it depends on how sophisticated they are, and you can have less missiles and more warheads, and etc., etc. And, and I totally agree with Alexander. The Russians won't get rid of their nuclear weapons when China's sitting across the border from... Do we want to keep Trident, then? Are we going to go into this? I mean, traditionally what we've done is said, OK, we will reduce when there is an agreement, we'll reduce accordingly. There's always already been some sort of total Well, I think I I can see Claire shaking here, but I disagree. I think we should keep Trident or have some kind of nuclear capability. Uh, If you live in a world where people like Iran has nuclear capability, you don't throw away yours. It's quite simple. Claire? 
I'm with Lord Guthrie, Guthrie on this one. He was talking just over a week ago on this, saying that we could explore lightweight options. We only have nuclear for deterrent purposes, as in theory does everybody else. Um, and I just think it's... Uh, I was interested to see Alex Salmon was out on the streets earlier this week uh, demonstrating against it. I think it's something we can't afford. We still have this capability in place. Trident will last till 2024. I think it's premature to be uh, putting money into a new generation when we haven't done the homework of assessing what kind of forces. We, we keep coming back to this subject, but we're not having this discussion about what kind of forces we need to deploy, what kind of overall... But it's not going to be... An- the strategic defence review, is it? The, the Trident programme? Well, That's I mean, most decided. people, yes, the major parties are signed up to it, and I think it should be back on the agenda. I think there is, there is a public debate to be had on this. It's an awful but lot of money neither... to be throwing at something we never intend to use, and where we could actually be sending out those deterrent signals yeah. through other nuclear means. But the Tories and Labour are going for Trident renewal. Uh, Liberals won't go for Trident renewal. Good for but them. Then so what? Because unless there is a remarkably hung parliament, um, then what, what voice are the Liberals going to have in this? But I think in the new parliament, this should be open to discussion and there should be inputs from further afield. It's, it's, you can't have these unilateral, very expensive decisions made when every other budget is being required to be cut back considerably with no discussion. And there has been no public or parliamentary decision. And I think this should be left to the new parliament, at least to kickstart the new committee structure, to examine this. Tell me, but you have to tell people about the new committee structure because that's going to be important. People voting for the chairman of the committee rather than Absolutely. being fixed by the parties. Yes. They won't, they won't be put in place by whips. They will be, if you like, more democracy. There's quite a debate. I mean, there's some also fears that new parliament will be so full of inexperienced new MPs it will take them the first five years to find, you know, which corridor, which meeting room is in, unfortunately. But in terms of an opportunity uh, to reform parliament, I definitely think public opinion is in favour after the, obviously, the, the expenses scandal of trying to, and also what's coming out in the Chilcot inquiry, which is an over-centralisation. We haven't heard their verdict yet, but it's an over-centralisation in number 10, Downing Street and small, very undemocratically controlled circles who make major decisions like when and how we go to war. I think the public would like to see more of this debated, uh, certainly more scrutiny of intelligence going on in Parliament. They don't necessarily need to do it themselves, but they need to, to know that due process has been followed. And I think we've seen a derogation of democracy in this country very clearly through instances like the war in Iraq. And Julian, do we have to rethink the way we have uh, or way our armed forces are structured because of the nuclear debate? I mean, at one time, every exercise, blue or a blue side and orange side, ended up with so-called nuclear release, um, end of war and probably end of continental Europe at the same time. But do we have to restructure the way we do things? No, I don't think so, um, because we're not <coughs> facing the same sort of enemy. Those sort of exercises were based on on fighting the Soviet Union. And we knew, because we weren't prepared to spend enough on conventional weapons, that we'd be going backwards extremely fast and end up with our backs in the English Channel in about 10 days. And therefore the only thing we could resort to was was nuclear release. Uh, And we just hoped it never happened. Mm. Uh, but we, but they don't play it now because we're not playing exercises. Uh, we're not. We don't have an enemy which has got a, a, a nuclear threat at the moment. Mm. Alexander, there's another side of this, in that armed, tre- armed treaties um, simply reflect the state of relations between the two countries, usually uh, Russia, say, and America, 
when they sign them. They don't decide those relations, do they? They don't influence the future relationship. And that's important when we're thinking in much more in global terms. Yes, you're right, because we had, you know, start treaties and then relations were terrible afterwards. And uh, uh, the, the, the main point, I think, about nuclear weapons, we should always remember that, is that they have prevented the Third World War. You, you can really talk, think that? I mean, of course, of course, of course they did, because, uh, it, the, because the point is this, that what else could prevent somebody else from attacking and taking over vast, you know, territories and uh, other countries, nuclear weapons, because the threat of, of destruction or mutual destruction or whatever kept everybody at bay. Of course, the nuclear weapons got out of control. Nobody is disputing that. But suddenly to say, let's dispose of them, for example, imagine Britain is getting rid of them. And India and Pakistan and Iran and, and, and probably somebody else by that time would have yeah, nuclear weapons. <laughs> yes. You see, that doesn't, it just doesn't work like that. You can't just say, that's it. You know, we're out of it. We, we don't have the money. And what would happen to the strategic situation if you imagine that, you know, this balance which was there suddenly is destroyed? You know, what, what, what will prevent some Iran, Iran, for example, starting a nuclear war? Claire, it's fascinating. If you go back to 83, hmm. when I suppose CND got its, its biggest boost ever with the introduction or the threatened introduction of Cruz and Pershing II hmm. uh, weapons here, uh, CND went right to the top of everybody's. Yeah, they're right. You don't see a march. Nobody goes to all, marches to Aldenston or there are no placards, in, well, not many in placards in Trafalgar Square. Why hasn't CND got that clout now? Well, because I think, you know, Trident is invisible. Um, there's no obvious place to go. And when people do, where, where are they parked? Up in Scotland somewhere. Um, they swiftly get rebuffed. I think um, this decision about Trident is something which I think most people believe is not as firm as it looks in the sense that with a new government and new parliament, uh, alternative decisions will be made. But I think when it comes to it, there would be there would be some disquiet. And it's true, there's, there's a sense with Iran and everybody else acquiring, not quite acquiring weapons, but suspected of doing so, that we can't necessarily opt out. But as I said before, we're not opting out until 2024. There is time to do something about this at a time when, naive or not, I know you've characterised Obama as naive, but, you know, he is looking for a nuclear-free... Middle East, he's, a, he's, a, he's at least trying to move to the direction where this gets reduced. I mean, the Middle East is in a bit of a mess, isn't it? Uh, the Middle East is all over sixteen hundred apartments. It's it's, <laughs> but it's always conventional. I mean, what goes on in the Middle East is far more dangerous at the grassroots than it is in the nuclear sphere. Right. Well, we're coming up to the half past the hour, and you're listening to SITREP with me, Christopher Lee. And if you've just joined us, you can catch the whole programme simply by going into uh, SITREP at bfbs.com and clicking on Listen Again. Now time to see what defence stories have been on the UK newsstands this week. Rupert Nickel has been looking through some of them. Yes, Christopher. Uh, we're in an interesting period for military media at the moment. In the past, the media have usually only been interested in the military when something goes wrong. But with so many stories and so much going on around the world, um, while this is still true, there are many positive stories too. And this morning's papers have um, a marvellous picture of the latest astute-class submarine operating with Dauntless, the second type 45 destroyer, spread uh, right across one of the pages in the Telegraph, bigger than Brown admits defence spending error. So um, times are changing. 
the Sun on Wednesday had the Navy sending an attack submarine to the Falklands, uh, HMS Scepter going down to resist Argentine saber-rattling over the uh, over oil development. And that story has gone on today. Um, the Mirror has a story that Argentina has made an ultimatum to big firms. They've got to get out of the Falklands or they won't be allowed to operate within Argentina, uh, which is quite interesting. Um, one of the big uh, military stories in The Guardian this week has been the United States readies for the greatest exodus of men and machines in 40 years as the Iraq war enters its last act. And with the proper drawdown uh, described here, huge convoys forming, large centers uh, being made up to get the, uh, the American forces out of Iraq. There are some, still some negative ones as well. Um, we've got military training to be cut back in the Telegraph and even Navy cocktail parties to be sunk. This led to quite a lot of uh, uh, letters in the Times saying, surely we paid for these ourselves in the wardroom in the past, and it's such a, so much diplo- diplomatic advantage for so little cost, it's a stupid cutback. Um, the Independent on Tuesday had a story about the scout car deal being uh, transferred to America. Britain has too open a policy on acquisition, and the Americans would never let... Uh, other countries move in the way that we do. On the wrong track was the headline there. Then we have, is the army losing its war against drug abuse in Monday's Independent? And several papers covering a navigation error that led to a submarine crash. Uh, HMS Superb um, ran into a rock pinnacle in the, in the Gulf because uh, everybody on the bridge misread the, uh, uh, misread the chart. But the sun has got thousands salute their heroes as uh, the Mercian Regiment marks, marches through Newark in Norfolkshire, um, in Nottinghamshire. So it's an interesting balance and lots of different military stories this week. Rupert Dickel, thank you very much. And I'm sorry for the quality of that line. Rupert's on an excise somewhere in Ealing. Um, still at the sit rep round table, Dr. Claire Spencer from the London <laughs> Think Tank, uh, Chatham House, Royal Marine Major General Julian Thompson, and the Editor-in-Chief of Stirring Trouble Internationally, uh, Alexander Nekrasov. Alexander, what's your... What, what have you been doing on your website this week? What t- top story? I know you don't take a, a too serious view. Actually, you do, but you report it c- uh, cynically. Yes, we did. Yes, we do. Well, actually, we have an article which is coming out uh, tomorrow, uh, and it's quite a big story because uh, it's, uh, it's, um, it's about Georgia, and it's about uh, the first uh, national TV channel announcing that the Russians have invaded Georgia again <laughs> and that President Saakashvili is dead. Ooh. Without any explanation. Oh, this was a joke, wasn't it? A well, it was a, well, it was a bad joke because they, they didn't really explain anything. All, and people, all good jokes are bad jokes. Well, yes, but the panic <laughs> on the streets, people started, you know, running out, buying things and, well, basically running in, in all directions. And uh, uh, people were asking us, so why did it happen? Why would the uh, Georgian president who is supposedly saying <laughs> do that and and i i can explain why because i know georgia very well and uh, the point is this georgia is afraid that russia will attack nobody's paying any attention they have been sending their emissaries everywhere paris washington nobody's you know just yeah 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 <laughs> now the story has hit you've probably seen it on television here it's big story, huge story. Even our website is now going to cover that. So <coughs> what, what it means is that they have attracted attention at last. 
So they used it in a terrible way, of course, and President Saakashvili is now, you know, Russians calling him, the Kremlin calling him mad and so on. But um, there's always a reason uh, for something happening, something bizarre happening. And the, the other story which we put out, and one of our people who really knows the situation in Afghanistan, was about this NATO's heroic restraint uh, policy. And he, <laughs> he was asking whether this... Um, is going to work at all and whether it's not madness. Because, you know, uh, in, in Afghanistan, for example, the Soviet troops lost a lot of soldiers and a lot of officers when they were told, let's win hearts and minds. Let's not respond. If they shoot at us, don't respond with rockets. Just shoot at them. Well, what happened was the Mujahed, Mujahideen were using as front uh, 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 women, children, old people and so on. Behind them were the shooters. So the Russian soldiers would be winning hearts and minds by helping them fixing the carts and so on, and there come the people with arms and kill mm. them. Lost a lot of soldiers like that. So I would, I would uh, say to people now in Afghanistan, to soldiers, NATO soldiers, don't do it, don't listen. You shoot back, you shoot back big time if they shoot at you, because there will be losses, there will be big losses. But on our website, we have an article about this, which is sort of a... Satirical, humorous, but it makes this point. Doesn't sound very no, humorous to me. I mean, no, 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 no. It's written in a different way. Okay, Julian, okay. um, it's a difficult one, though, isn't it? The hearts and minds. At what stage does it come in? It's when the berries uh, go on and the helmets. Come it's on. a very difficult one, and, and of course, the British Army faced that in Northern Ireland. The IRA used to push children and women up the streets too. Uh, I, I'm not in fa favour of, of shooting the women and children. I think um, that it would be a bad thing to do. Mm. Um, I think you'd lose any support you might have, and you'd certainly lose any uh, international support if you did it. So I'm, I'm not in favour of it. Yeah. No, no, I was, I was talking about not, not women and children. I was talking about not responding yeah. to the firepower and sort of be doing it gently. And as we wrote, our author, I mean, our writer, he's very funny. He said, winning hearts and minds, even when they are detached from the bodies. It's bad taste. Uh, oh, it was bad quite taste. a good answer. Say, I'm surprised Alexander's saying this, given what he said earlier about human intelligence. I mean, the very essence of human intelligence tells you that the more women no and children you kill, the more Taliban and or Al-Qaeda no, you, you create. No, you didn't get it. I, I was not talking about and women and children. And the second point is you cannot, sh you cannot sh fire back, as the Israelis found very much of their cost, without hitting some women and children. If you're firing back at where these things were, were launched, whether it's in Gaza or southern Lebanon, there are civilians in the way and it's the civilians that are killed and hit the headlines and have extremely negative effects as they're still suffering from internationally so listen i want to lighten work. this up a bit <laughs> 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 i really do i do know. i feel quite depressed um because you're wearing a pink shirt today you want to be frivolous <clears throat> this is true this is true fuchsia pink i should well, tell everybody a black one i'm not a mafioso it's blue, actually. It's blue. blue. All right, job. Oh, general's colourblind. <laughs> Listen, um, <laughs> protests. Talking of shirts, protests, yes. protests, protests. I mean, if, you, if did you have you been following the protest in Thailand? The red shirts are demanding that the Thai prime minister uh, closes down and, and goes. And I've been sitting there listening. I think, why are they call? Why do they wear red shirts? I know why the government lot wear yellow shirts. And that's because yellow is the, and I did, I mean, it's the nicest way. Yellow is the colour of the monarchy in Thailand. Mm. 
and so the government supports the monarchy, so they wear yellow shirts. But why red shirts? Anybody working got class, any ideas? Working class. They, they represent the, the, <laughs> the, the working class and small farmers, small uh, that's that's why they're wearing red. But the point is this: that it already happened several times. There is the king, the emperor, and he decides <laughs> what happens. He already did once when he just decided that the military will move in because the government was so corrupt and and take it out. Not a shot was fired. We're not talking about. Uh, I mean, we're going back, aren't we? Uh, in 2006, the coup. Is that what well? It was. It was not a shot was fired. They came in. They stayed for a while. Then they allowed the the, the elections to to, to take place. We supported the prime minister Taksin Chinawatra then, didn't we? I mean, I say we, Western governments, were on his side and supporting. I suppose bugging money to a certain people. And didn't he buy a football team? There you are. Well, he tried to. No, he yes. did. He owned his football team. Now, I think what I'm, what I'm getting at is the whole colour revolution. You know, why was why were communists... Is there a Serapalian somewhere? In blood. This? I mean, no, nothing to do with it. It was red for blood. I mean, in fact, it's not the communists. The, the people in the Paris Commune wore red shirts in the 1870s. Because of blood. Yeah, and then I think probably even in the, in, in, um, in 17... Whenever it was, 17... What, sort of 19... Yeah, you know, when the, when the French had their... So we're back to... And that's interesting because... I hope everybody's following this. The red shirts in Thailand got nothing to do with us at the moment, but the red shirts in Thailand, what did they do yesterday? They sprayed blood, not oh, paint, yes. but yes. real mm. blood. They all mm. went up mm. and said, right, Volunteer. I give my blood, and they got it in a bucket. Mm. And they no, in bottles. Bottles, was bottles, it? Yes. And they sprayed it uh, outside the 11th Infantry Regiment headquarters. And that's where the Prime Minister's uh, taking refuge, they call it at the moment. I mean, taking a seaman-like precaution, I would have thought, and sort of getting into the biggest building where the biggest guys are going to protect you. But blood. It's now, pretty symbolic, isn't it? Well, it is. It is. Brown shirts, black shirts, fascism. We take a lot of notice about shirts, don't we? It is the biggest identifier. Go to a football match, the crowds, one end blue, one end red. You know which end is Chelsea, you know which end is... Mm. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> and uh, black is not actually a colour because it's a dead colour. Okay. But um, and pink shirts for the gay rights parade. Um, do they? I think so. I thought they wore t-shirts. Yeah. Uh, well, they did when I went. Anyway, um, <laughs> I want to try something else here. Um, we've been we were talking about uh, um, uh, Iran and they're going to have nuclear weapons over there. That's where they're heading. And if if you're if you're thinking in terms of newspapers and journals, and most people, they say, well, President Ahmadinejad is lying, and Iran is trying to build up nuclear warheads. Then they say, Israel shouldn't be building apartments in the occupied territories. And then they say, Gordon Brown is responsible for the helicopter shortage, etc. What happens if the other guy is right? What happens... Why shouldn't we be looking at the very real possibility that President Ahmadinejad, who a lot of people think is a basket case, but he ain't a basket case because he's still there, what happens if he isn't lying? Why? G- well, give me the evidence that well, they I, are I, building nuclear weapons. I have to say, weapons. in defence, if you, if you go to, it's very interesting, if you go to conferences on Middle East energy, uh, including those who are looking into renewables, as opposed to the conferences that just talk about security and whether Israel's going to bomb Iran, etc., there's a completely different take on the logic of at least civilian nuclear power. There is a sense in which 
it adds up economically for the Iranians to reserve what they have in the way of oil and indeed put money into developing, which they're not actually doing, but they should, developing their gas fields for exports because that's going to be their major money spinner. And rather using rather than using it themselves, civilian nuclear power, as indeed in the Gulf, if you look across to Abu Dhabi, they're, they're looking into the same thing, economically makes sense. So there's a case in which... You know, if it weren't for all the other circumstantial evidence that it's not just civilian, it's a logical um, thing for Iran. It is to a have logical. It. There is a logic that doesn't strike you straight away. Now, as for the Israelis and building settlements, I think the logic uh, goes counter to, it seems to me, uh, the long-term survival of the state of Israel. Because if uh, if they don't end up with a poss- the possibility of a two-state solution, um, Israel will find itself barricaded in um, with demography, not just amongst the Palestinians, but in Jordan, Syria. Lebanon against them. So there isn't much of a logic in the long term. In the short term, it's it's a tactical approach, which they've employed over the last 20 plus years, which has reaped rewards insofar as, you know, they've contained and controlled and encircled the Palestinian population. But I suggest going back to your point about history, the weight of history and demography is against them. Okay. Listen, uh, on the line from Israel is Dr. Jonathan Spire, researcher at the Global Research um, Institute in International Affairs, um, and a columnist from the Jerusalem Post. Tell me, why is Israel always going against world opinion? That's the cockeyed way of putting it, I know, but why is it? Well, um, I suppose it depends on how you define world opinion. I mean, I think that uh, Israel, in terms of its right to exist and so on, its right to defend itself, is not necessarily against world opinion. But uh, Israel, unlike its enemies, has no diplomatic hinterland. You know, it faces uh, its enemies, so to speak, in the Arab world and in the wider Muslim world. You know, it is vastly more populous and vastly more... Uh, uh, numerous than Israel is itself. So it means that in international forums such as the UN, Israel's enemies can always get a very good hearing because they have their sort of part of a much larger block. Israel, by contrast, you know, had a very, very strong ally in the United States of America, a certain number, a certain depth of linkage to Europe, working relations with other countries, but not that sort of natural uh, membership of a cultural club, which its enemies do. So I think in that sense, Israel has a, has a certain imbalance in playing on the international stage. But having said that, I do think one has to separate out the, the various policy <coughs> elements, you know, rather than sort of blanketly say that Israel is against world opinion. Yeah. If, I mean, this may not work, um, but a lot of people might think to themselves, if I were an Israeli, if I'd lived in Israel... Um, a country that's been a nation that's been at war, really, or war footing since 1948, then perhaps I want to build out into the so-called occupied territories because what I'm building is a buffer zone. Well, that's correct. I think that was the original uh, reason for beginning to build over the Green Line. I would say, of course, that it's harder. It will be harder to make that argument for some of the smaller settlements which have been built um, you know, deep into the heart of, of, of highly populated Palestinian areas in the West Bank. But certainly in terms of the big settlement blocks south of Jerusalem, east of Tel Aviv, you know, these ones I think were built with the idea of creating a buffer zone. And it's worth remembering, if we're talking about demography, that, you know, the vast majority of settlers live in those large blocks which are expected to be annexed to Israel in the event of, uh, of a two-state solution with the Palestinians, you know, in return for territorial exchanges. So, yes, I think the idea of a buffer zone 
that was a major part of, of thinking in, in creating the settlement enterprise. Having said that, you know, there are also settlements which cannot be fitted, I think, into that uh, rubric and that logic. What, I mean, can I come back to this idea that living on a war footing or psychologically living on a war footing since 1948, what does it do to, what does it do to a nation? Well, I think it's also important to remember that it's not even just since 1948, you know, in a certain sense that the Jewish national or Zionist enterprise that, that preceded the creation of Israel you know, began in the late 19th century in response to anti-Semitism in, in Eastern Europe at that time. So... Jewish history and subsequently Israeli history has been, a, unfortunately, a history of trauma and conflict pretty much for the, the better part of the, of the last century and beyond it, not just for the last 60 years. What does it do to, to people and to the national mentality? I think it does create a very uh, sceptical and very uh, mobilized uh, mentality. It creates a very, very strong sense of patriotism, I think a very strong sense of connectedness <laughs> to the country, and a sense of very great caution, I would say, that, you know, a reluctance to take excessive risks for notional uh, peace or, or a better world down the road, because history teaches the people of Israel, I would say, that often those risks, you know, are not worth the candle, and often they, they, they come with a very heavy price. So there's a very strong uh, defensive feeling, a very strong and vivid sense of history, I think, and a strong sense of uh, attachment to, uh, to the country, bred by the sense of, uh, of necessity, born of a long involvement in conflict. Dr. Jonathan Spire, thank you very much. Um, Claire, there is, there is something else here. I seem to remember that after the June War of 1967... Mm. Um, the Israelis were world heroes. They were the little guys that had taken on everything. Uh, we don't see it that way now internationally, by and large, do we? Well, what I think happened? it's just over the years the balance has changed. Don't forget at the time and over the subsequent decades, the PLO was still seen as a terrorist organisation, uh, that they were attacking Israel. Um, the settlement activity wasn't quite as pronounced, although it's been a, a continual activity by every Israeli government. Uh, and I think that just the shoe is on the other foot, that with certainly in recent years with the wars in Lebanon, wars in Gaza, whatever the rights of self-defense of Israel, which are definitely there, uh, it's, it's, if you like, the, the perceived excessive use of force, particularly against civilians, which for the reasons we discussed earlier were very difficult to avoid. Uh, and there's many I know within the Israeli defense forces, you know, really think they should examine these kind of tactics have pitted what was perceived to be Israel the beleaguered victim in in the role of regional bully, I'm afraid, in, in some respects. And it's in, in presenting their views, particularly since the Israeli political establishment has moved to the right, it's more the religious nationalists who are behind the settler, settler movement, it's not the mainstream Israeli opinion who are necessarily supporting their activities uh, in, in establishing settlements within the West Bank and beyond. And activities in East Jerusalem now is upsetting the balance of relations between Palestinians in East Jerusalem and other communities there. So I think, you know, there is, there's a lot to be said on the side of the, the, what the Israelis have been doing themselves, not just to defend themselves, but going beyond that to provoke anger in the region, which is worrying some of their allies. And we've seen the results of this uh, last week in the, in the spat over uh, Vice President Biden's visit. Right. Uh, well, I have to come back to my site again because uh, we had a 
article about the peace process between the Israelis and uh, the Palestinians, and the author said, what, what, peace, would, what, 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 peace what peace process would that be? I mean, there was never really a peace process between them, because both sides don't really want peace at the moment, at least. And... Uh, well, certainly, hang on, hang on, hang on. I think a decade or so ago, there was, uh, there was certainly well, was e- enough enlightened spirits on both sides who were moving towards it, and then the extremists have taken over on both Hamas sides. Hamas don't want peace at the moment, you might argue. But no, yeah, but, but, no, but by Palestinian, uh, you know, this um, uh, Palestinian movement, it's corrupt. It always has been. And the money that was pouring into the occupied territories from the IMF and the World Bank, where is this money? It's gone. It's on, a, on private well, offshore accounts. The European Union, they have tightened up since the late 90s on accountability for this money, which is why so little of it is getting into Gaza uh, because of lack of accountability and the fact they don't trust Hamas. And the money is going to the Palestinian Authority, very tightly controlled now. But that, I agree with you, it wasn't the case in the 90s. And also he says in his article that let's leave them alone. Let them fight in pieces, he writes, <laughs> which I, f- I found quite am- amusing. And uh, meaning, not, not of course, promote war or anything, but basically say that they have to sort it out themselves. <laughs> All those beautiful visits by Biden and others, they don't really work. They don't really help. a folk memory, which, which is more than just being at war since 1948, or in fact before that, actually, I don't know, back in the 30s. Uh, and then the folk memory is, which was told to me by a chap who was the attaché over here, and whether you believe it or go along with it or not, I think it's there, which is that if you give in, you'll be taken advantage of. Mm. And it's there in their psyche. Uh, you may think it's wrong, but it's there. This is the problem, I think, they, why they won't give up. It's because they're worried that if they give anything, that's the end. Mm. But I'm coming back to this, this idea of, uh, you know, sort of what happens if the other guy is right. Um, because we, we too easily, don't we, slag off, uh, say, the Ahmadinejads of this world, or, for example, the uh, whoever is, is the leader of some society or whatever that we don't particularly like or we want to poke fun at. Uh, Fidel Castro, I mean, did you see the CIA now say, well, we, we tried to kill him 674 times? Wait a minute. Yeah, but 674 times. Um, and so everybody says, you know, Castro is, is really bad news. Uh, in fact, he's, he, he may be, but he's still there. We, it's a natural instinct. There is a certain attitude. If you're British, if you're American, if you're whatever, and supporting that group in the UN, you slag off. You slag off Castro. You slag off... Saddam. Saddam. Yeah, but they're all dictators. <laughs> well, they all kill people, you know, for fun. So why should we not question the... You say Ahmadinejad has uh, uh, sensible sort of um, reasons. Excuse me. First of all, my suspicion is he's got a lot of oil there, but mm. they don't do petrol themselves. They, well, they they've only got one refinery. No, yes. no, look, they've made extraordinarily bad investment judgments. I mean, they should be refining their own petrol and they should be developing and, their gas and, sector. And, 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 and there's plenty of Iranians are shouting and screaming within Iran that that's exactly what Israel to bits. You know, when he well, talks uh, those things, I mean, how the Rhetoric do we... plays a huge role in these places, and I think if they wanted to hit Israel, they could have done it conventionally a long time ago. Okay, can I bring it closer to home? Um, everybody's had a go at uh, Gordon Brown. I don't say I feel sorry oh, for him. Easy well, target. Yeah, easy target. And there he is saying, well, you know, I really didn't do the numbers. And they said, what do you mean you didn't do the numbers? You're the, you're the Chancellor. I mean, you're the one man who ought to be able to do sums in the government, yeah? And he didn't do it uh, over, as we heard from James Arbuthnot earlier, uh, for five years. 
It happens all but, the time yeah, with but, finance ministers. Well, I'm just wondering is, what happens if Gordon Brown, Brown is actually right? I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I didn't get it right. But there's websites, there's people who worked with him who can prepare simple spreadsheets to say where the money went. I mean, I, I just don't understand. It's a lack of homework, or maybe he just went in there to bluster his way through. I was a special advisor to the finance minister of Russia. I never told him any truth. They're broke. How come no, you're but, here? But I never told him about anything that was... Uh, he said to me once, I'll ask you this, Alexander. Tell me how it is. What do the Americans think about our economic policy? I said to him, you don't want to know this minister, please. I was like, like Humphrey. in that yes, minister. I would send somebody down to the House of Commons library and find them. Come on, I want to tell my story. George V. Uh, didn't know what was happening in the in the de- Great Depression because the, because the government wouldn't tell him. And Jimmy Thomas, who was the Dennis Skinner of his day, uh, a Champagne Charlie, you see, and George V said to uh, Dennis Skinner, uh, sorry, to, to, to Jimmy Thomas, tell me, Mr Thomas, what state is my country in? And Jimmy Thomas said to him, well, if I were the king, I'd put it in my wife's name. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, you know, that is... That's all, 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 all right, but you know, it's a case that the other guy might have been right. Now, the other thing is, Julian, I quick come to this because I want to try something else in a moment. Um, it, when he says, "Will we give them the money at the Ministry of Defence?" but we don't decide what to do. And so, when the army says, "Well, we we don't want these uh, Land Rovers because they're uh, they're dangerous for us to use," isn't he right? I mean. Isn't, shouldn't the, the army take some of the blame for this? Well, the, problem, the, the, the problem with, well, let, let's pin you know, Hohen on that problem. Right. The, the problem with the vehicle thing, was, it, it was such a quick-moving target in that they sent vehicles across that they thought would be all right, and they discovered they weren't, and then what do you have next? And, and the way that the, 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 the industry works, it never catches up. With the with the enemy's ability to deal with whatever you produce next time round. Yeah, but the problem. but the but the army and its spokespeople in and sight and out and retired and serving, immediately went and said it's the government's fault that we haven't got the money to get this other equipment, and the truth was they hadn't anticipated, and as you said, industry just can't turn on the tap and say look here are some armoured vehicles, and so I think the army has got to something to you know people have got. Quite a lot to take the blame for on this. Well, I think I think one of the problems was being put back in there uh, with a extraordinary mandate, which was mm. to, to to reconstruct the country. When I heard it being said, I said, you know, if you're going to go and sell ice cream there, you're going to get shot at. Um, let alone try to restructure it and take away their livelihood, like destroying their poppy fields. Uh, and it was lack of a mission. They didn't really have a mission. Mm. They didn't have a mandate. And so, if you don't have a proper mission, you don't know what kit to order. Right. Can I come back to something else now? I mentioned all these sort of spokesmen and retired and whatever. The Justice Secretary um, uh, says he wants to reform the House of Lords, okay? He wants to have a fully elected upper house, a Senate maybe. Uh, Today there are 646 peers uh, in the House. Um, If he does this, all the guys like Lord Guthrie, Lord Boyce... The uh, bishops... The bi- well, forget the bishops, they're not speaking for defence. Um, <laughs> they might. <laughs> Lord Dannett, as he hopes to be, they're going to get the bums rush, aren't they? Oh, I think they'll get elected by telegraph readers. I mean... Uh, Where can they be? Can you imagine, can you imagine uh, uh, Lord Guthrie bothering to stand for Rotherham East or, 
or something like this? Well, I think he could be effective outside Parliament. I mean, the Lords is a very nice platform, but I think people would listen to anyone as senior as him anyway. But the point is, at the moment, in a defence debate in the House of Lords, there is a lobby almost entirely on the back benches, you could, or you, on the cross benches, you could, rather. I mean, I could see uh, the attraction of being elected to an upper house if you, if you made the conditions um, right. You could have to say you've got to have done this, that and the other, you've got to have certain sort of qualifications, like a degree, maybe, or whatever well, you've got it is. to get voted for. But... Then you can be put up. Oh, yeah, but you you could you could only run for it with certain qualifications. But you then have to become political, don't you? Because you have to come. You've got to be a Fine. Tory or whatever. Fine. But they've never been. I we mean, could be like the Montgomery, Romans. Montgomery, like the Romans, and say you may not sit Tory. in the Senate well, until you're tell, 40 I, years old. I can tell you a secret about this. The don't tell us a long secret. The hereditary we're going peers in about came, to me, came to me for help when they were kicked out by Blair. Who? The hereditary peers. Yeah. And I said to them, guys, he broke the constitution because you gave off to the queen. You did not give your off to the House of Commons or the government. So these letters patent. They were, this was broken. The, the constitution was uh, basically ignored by Blair. I think that Generals Dannett, um, Guthrie, Vincent maybe, Boyce, they've got to look elsewhere for the business in future. They'll not get those wonderful lunches in the House of Lords. Anyway, we're going... Claire Spencer, thank you very much. Julian Thompson and Alexandra Nekrasov, thank you very much. And thank you, um, Staff Sergeant Oz Schmidt and Kim Hughes. We'll be back here at the same time next week on BFBS Radio 2 at 4 o'clock UK time. Until then, I'm Christopher Lee. Mary? Mary's in the hut. Sitra with Christopher Lee.